Both of you seem to have a great deal of animosity towards your significant other's breathing habits. Taylor Rotwell, and we're back with the Laravel Podcast. This episode is a little different. Matt Stauffer is on vacation with his family, so in his place we have Adam, say your last name? Wathen. Wathen. I should have asked you how to pronounce <laughs> it beforehand. And of course we have uh, Jeffrey Way. Now Adam actually uh, works uh, with Matt at Titan, and of course Jeffrey is the founder and content curator of Laracast. All right, so this episode, we have a lot of different topics, sort of a uh, grab bag of different unrelated topics. But to get things started, uh, there's been some talk about what is simple code. I was actually on a podcast yesterday, and we were talking about what makes code simple. Is it it's easy to use? It has a simple API. It uh, solves its problem well. You know, what makes code nice and simple? And this is something we've talked about before on the podcast, but... Adam, I think, has a particular interest in this topic as well, and his Laracon talk is actually somewhat similar to this topic. So, uh, Adam, what for you? What what is simple code? Uh, it's a tricky topic, right? Like my presentation is about this a lot, and I think one of the one of the most important ways that you can look at it is to is to try and think about what simple code isn't instead. Um, so, I think like simple sometimes gets like a bad rap as being like you know, lazy code or like quick and dirty or, you know, the fastest way to solve a particular problem and then like not worry about making it elegant or whatever. Right. And I don't define simple that way. Um, what I found really useful was like Kent Beck has these like four rules of simple design, which I thought was an interesting definition of what simple means. And for him, the, the definition of simple is just code that passes the tests, right. Which, uh, you know, some people define that in different ways, but uh, the second one is that it reveals intent, right? So when you read it, it's clear what it does. You don't have a bunch of like nasty, complex, uh, 180 character long conditionals where you can't really understand, well, what is the condition that you're actually trying to check sort of thing? Uh, that code isn't duplicated so that, you know, when you need to make a change, you can just make a change in one place. And that it has the fewest number of parts necessary for it to do exactly what you need it to do. And I've found that trying to like use those as a sort of heuristic for judging what simple code is has been pretty useful the other thing i think is that it's hard to just look at one piece of code and say is this code simple or not simple but as soon as you take two solutions to the same problem and look at them next to each other it's really really easy to form an opinion about which one you think is simpler so this idea of like comparing code rather than judging code on its own i think is a really powerful way to look at it as well yeah i I find it interesting that sort of like you were saying adam the, the idea of writing simple code is almost something that people mock. And when you think about it, it's like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Like, that should be the metric. Uh, I talk about this a lot in, in my conference talk, too. This idea that, for some reason, the only metric when people look at your code is, does it adhere to these design patterns and these solid principles? And it's like, okay, those are things to keep in mind, but they're not the only metrics. Surely the most important metric is... Uh, whether it's simple, and it, it is hard to describe what simple is. For me, it's just, does it make sense? And it's weird because I, I will work on 
some API for whatever. And I will think I have it simple, and then I'll realize, you know, down the stretch, it wasn't even remotely simple. For some reason, that's like the hardest thing in the world. So that's why it's funny when people kind of, you know, turn up their nose at it a little bit, like, oh, this isn't sophisticated. This isn't how mature developers code. This is very basic. And it's like, no, writing simple code is like frustratingly difficult. Uh, it's the number one thing I focus on. And uh, I have a lot more trouble with it than, than anything else. But I feel like, especially in the PHP community, we've kind of fallen into this trap where things like design patterns just rule the world, you know? And it's like, I think people, people forget design patterns are like solutions. They're not things you start out with. Right now, I'm reading through um, a great book. It's called uh, Refactoring Two Patterns. And it's, it's one of those books where like every chapter has eye-opening moments for you. And one thing that uh, the author really talks about is this idea that Patterns are something you refactor toward, or sometimes you refactor away from. But I feel like right now, the culture in the PHP community is you start out with these patterns. And I see this on the forum all the time. Like, I want to start this project. Does anybody have some good patterns that I can use? And it's like, <laughs> no, that, that's not what you're doing. The goal should be simple until proven complex, is what I often say. It's like, try to make this as easy as you possibly can. And then if you hit some hurdle, you can refactor toward a design pattern if it makes it easier. But it's certainly not where you begin, not even remotely. Yeah, and I think the thing there, too, is, right, like, just because you're using... A design using a design pattern doesn't mean that that's more complex than whatever the simple solution is, right? A lot of the time you're applying a pattern because it's simpler than whatever hodgepodge just kind of code your brains out solution you'd come up with if you're just mashing your keys on the keyboard trying to solve the problem, right? So that kind of the definition of of simple being like you know clear, expressive code that solves the problem with the fewest amount of you know hidden complexities and stuff like that is a little different than this idea of simple being you know basic or quick and dirty which i think sometimes gets conflated yeah sort of i think what you're saying is like a lot of people sort of malign rapid application development quote unquote as being um it doesn't plan for the future or like what what about in 15 years will this app still be maintainable and that's sort of like the infinite trump card where that's sort of like the will it scale argument you know it's just sort of unanswerable because how would you even know you know how could you even predict that far into the future yeah well the, i think the planning for the future thing is kind of like a i don't think that's a reasonable argument in the first place like if you talk to someone like kent beck for example he is totally opposed to the idea of uh, trying to plan things up front or trying to accommodate changes that might come that you don't know for sure if they're going to come. Uh, you know, his whole approach is trying to take every decision down to what do I need like one second from now? That's the only change that I want to accommodate. And I've seen situations where people have tried to, you know, architect things in advance as if they're trying to you know, they're thinking of it as like a technical investment, right? Which is kind of like the opposite of like technical debt where you're trying to like do all this stuff up front. That's going to allow you to do all this stuff down the road. But I look at that as more like playing the technical lottery or something where really you're just planning for changes that might not be the actual changes that come down anyways. And now you have way more code that you're going to have to figure out how to refactor to support the requirements that actually do come down the line. Whereas if you if you had just focused on, you know, having the minimum amount of pieces there that solve the problem then that's way less code that you have to keep in your head and, and tweak when you do have to add new features or rework how something works because all of a sudden a user can now have 
you know, multiple whatever instead of a one-to-one relationship that they had before. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. this idea of just trying to keep things as small and doing exactly what they need and nothing more, I think is a, that's kind of the a philosophy that I live by anyways. That's the side of the fence that I'm on and it, it's been working well for me for a while. So how do you, when say you're tackling a big project and how do you keep it from growing sort of into this very ugly mess? Like for me, in my experience, it's really helpful if you have a good grasp of what you're trying to do with the application, whether it's like a startup you're building that's tackling some particular problem or something at work. I, a lot of times I feel like if you don't get a good grasp of the project and you just kind of start hacking, that's when you start really missing a lot of, um, or your application starts getting really unwieldy and grows in a lot of weird ways. Whereas if you take time to really like grasp the problem, that gives you time to sort of think about the simple solutions to the problem. Whereas if you just start hacking, you have no direction and you can end up building a a pretty unmaintainable mess. Do you have any kind of tricks for how you approach sort of a larger project? Like the idea of like planning for changes that you don't know about is one thing, but planning for requirements that are real, that are in your phrase today is is different, right? Like trying to sit at the whiteboard and think about, okay, well, like this is the actual, you know, goal that we want the user to be able to achieve. Well, what are all the pieces that are going to be involved there? And, you know, spending a little bit of time thinking about how that's going to work is important for the reasons that you said Um, on top, like the, the next thing after that is just, you have to put the same amount of effort and thought and care into every single individual character that you type as you do into these high level architecture ideas, right? If you solve a solution, you know, some small part of something in like a dirty way that you're not really like proud of that you wouldn't want to show to the world. The second you start writing other code that depends on that code working that way, that code can never be changed. Right? So it's like a constant battle. Like it's a grind. Like you can't just get it right. And then coast the rest of the time it's it's constantly working and constantly making sure everything's exactly the way you need it to be and not being afraid to change things to accommodate you know new stuff like i keep mentioning kent beck all the time because kent beck is like the coolest dude ever who's not dhh but um (laughs) (laughs) he had this like awesome tweet from like 2012 which was it was something like uh whenever you have a change that you need to make to your system make the change easy and then make the easy change uh, and he has it in quote or has in brackets next to the make the change easy part warning this may be hard <laughs> but the reality is you have to accept that that might be hard and not just be lazy and build something on top of it because it was too hard or it was going to be too much work to you know make your system accommodate this new change uh if you're trying to follow this emergent design stuff that's like a very real part of it where if you have some change come down the line that means reworking some stuff for that change to fit in nicely if you don't rework that stuff to make that change fit in nicely, you're ignoring these like design signs that are coming down the line that are trying to push you in the direction of this is what your application should be structured like to accommodate the sorts of real changes that you're actually having come down the line that you're actually having to make, right? So I think um I think there's like this idea that you're supposed to somehow get things right up front, that you're supposed to be able to like build something and it's going to survive and you're never going to have to change it because you got the abstraction perfect. And I think you have to just kind of, you have to accept that that's not the reality and be totally happy and satisfied with the idea of reworking stuff and changing stuff because software is never done. Right. And if, if you're not constantly working at things, constantly making changes to support new things in such a way that you're still happy with the design, then you're just cementing bad design decisions that maybe were good desi- design decisions two weeks ago, but are not 
good design decisions now into place and you can't do anything with them once they're there permanently and other stuff depends on them. So I agree. This idea that like you're just supposed to get it right up front is just absurd because at the like why would that ever be the appropriate thing? At the very beginning, you you just don't understand. You may think you understand it, but from my experiences, I'll be building something and then a year later I realize Oh, why didn't I do it like that? And it's because, well, I didn't have all this year's worth of experience. I didn't know what I was doing. So, like, for example, uh, on Twitter maybe a month ago, somebody was talking about rebuilding their application after a long time. And he was sort of criticized because they're like, well, if you had done it right up front, you wouldn't be in this position. And it's like, that's just not true. You know, this, this application lasted five, ten years. It was time for a rewrite. Not even, not even, not even to mention, you know, just the changes in technologies that we have. An application that was built ten years ago probably doesn't look even remotely like the way you would build it today. So that's just one reason to rewrite. But the other is, well, you're going to have such a better grasp on how all of this works years after you started building it. So it's not like the worst idea in the world that after five, six, seven years, you rewrite some of it. That just seems like the most natural thing to me. I don't know why that gets mocked. And that's one of the most awesome things about software development, right? Compared to a lot of other things that you could build in the physical world is you kind of do have to get things right up front in a lot of, you know, industries. But in software, where it's just characters on a screen, we have that flexibility. So I think it's important to accept that and embrace that. All right. So kind of shifting topics here a little bit. Say you're working on a side project. One thing I've seen a lot of people struggle with on Twitter and I've gotten some feedback on is people have trouble when they start a side project sort of finishing out or staying the course and finishing the project. Is there anything that you guys do to sort of stick with the projects you start? You know, everyone has like just a bag of unfinished side projects and it's really common for programmers to take on side projects because we're sort of um, programming is a, is a kind of unique profession where you can basically the sky's the limit in terms of what you you can create and we're tend to be sort of the creative type and so we always want to take on new things how do, how do you guys sort of stick with it and not let you know just add one more side project to the list of sort of uh, failed side projects uh, I don't know. I think I'm just as guilty as anyone, man. I have a couple things that I've finished through enough that I can put it out in the real world and people can actually use it. But those, you know, are far outweighed by things where I got maybe 70% of the way there and I was satisfied that, hey, I've solved this problem. This is cool. And now that last like 20%, 30% round of just polishing it and making it good enough to put it out into the world just doesn't motivate you in the same way as kind of that early momentum where you're trying to get it done. I think the the one thing I can say is you have to start, right? Starting is the hardest thing when you have an idea for something and you have to finish while the iron is hot sort of thing, right? Because momentum and kind of inspiration is perishable and it'll eventually go away. So while you're excited about it, just work on it as hard as you can and try and get it done then because you're not going to be excited about it forever. Yeah. There's like a big initial rush. Like when I start a side project of like, holy crap, this is going to be the best thing ever, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But you're right. That does sort of like fade over the course of sometimes like a day or two. <laughs> <laughs> and you're sort of stuck there and it's just another another failure. But maybe that's okay. I mean, maybe if you enjoy the time you had with a side project, even if you didn't get it out, it's not like the time was completely wasted. You probably still learned things and added more tools to kind of your toolkit of, of things you can do in the future. So it's not necessarily... Um, I don't think necessarily you should feel bad for like every single thing you don't complete because everything sort of is going to to help you in the long yeah. run. At the same time, though, sometimes 
like I found myself in a situation many times where I kind of feel like, man, I have nothing to show. Like, I feel like I've been doing the software stuff for so long and I've been learning all this stuff and I feel like I'm always doing stuff. But if someone asked me, like, show me something that you built that like you're really proud of that you think is really great. That list of things is is so small and sometimes that can be hard. So I think it is important to at least try and get stuff done while you're excited about it if if you can. But you're right that if you know, if if you learn what you set out to learn, then you can always just kind of take that away as as you know, some level of satisfaction anyways. What about you, Jeffrey? One issue I always have is like even for things like packages, I'll, I'll get really into something. I'm like, okay, this is way too hard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to simplify this big time. So I create the package. I get it up on GitHub. Everything's great. I maintain it for a while. And then it's like, well, it was a year ago that I did that, and I've moved on, but these issues are still coming through, and it's not something that I'm just actively focusing on as much anymore. But I still have to maintain this project. So for me, that's, that's like a difficult thing to do. Maybe at that point, you just find a new maintainer or something like that. But I definitely have like a couple repos where it's like they're in need of maintenance. But just you take your daily work versus the new stuff you're working on inside projects. And sometimes like these, these little packages you build get neglected. So that's something I always have to be careful about. Because it's like you want to share this with the rest of the world. You're solving a problem for yourself first, but you want to share it. But then also there's this responsibility that you have to maintain it until you know, the end of the world, which is difficult. Do you guys have trouble with that at all? The worst part I find is like packages sometimes start to pick up momentum and gain popularity, like way after you're already sick of looking at them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of on a related note, uh, as far as sticking with projects, I've been doing a little bit of research into sort of like productivity and developers getting in the flow of programming for my Laracon talk. And as I've been researching, you know, of course, a lot of people have troubles with sort of like, for me, I notice when I'm coding, if I hit sort of like a rough spot with coding where I can't figure something out, a lot of times my first inclination is to like pop open a new tab on Chrome and type in facebook.com or something like that. (laughs) And then I just find myself like, it's almost like muscle memory where I get stuck, boom, new tab, command T, (laughs) Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Yes. And you blow like, and maybe only spend two or three minutes on, on the site, but you're sort of wasting time there. Is there anything you do to keep yourself from sort of procrastinating? Do you even have those problems at all? Or is that just me? It's weird. Sometimes I'll find like I will be in the middle of writing a line of code. And it's like before I know it, I'm hitting control space, typing in facebook.com. It's weird. Like you said, with muscle memory, it's like, I'm not, I don't even know I'm doing this. I'm just suddenly opening up Twitter. And it was like, I was just writing a line of code here. And it's like, it's almost like your brain shutting down for a minute where it's like, no, you need a break. Just get away from it. Or if it's, I don't, I don't know why we do that. I, I can't control it. I know Taylor, you've like blocked Facebook before or Twitter. Yeah. You have to put like an, an entry in your host file that basically redirects everything to some site that says, get back to work, you idiot. <laughs> yeah. So I, I installed this, this blocker into Chrome that Jeffrey mentioned. And the, the cool thing about this blocker is it shows you how many times you've tried to access any given site. And so I, I left it installed for maybe a week and a half. And I think I tried to access facebook.com 127 times in that week and a half <laughs> out of just muscle memory, even though it had been blocked the whole week, like I was still popping <laughs> it up. I still hadn't learned to stop doing it. Um, so, and then I even got to the point where my brain was cheating and I would pop open Safari, which didn't have the extension and then go to Facebook really quick. So I don't know. It's, it's a hard habit to break and I'm still trying to figure out, you know, how to just stick with the problem 
and not sort of take like a two minute break. I was going to say something that's that's worked for me that might be you know an interesting uh, topic to talk about since we're all people who kind of work independently from home most of the time. Um, sometimes when I really want to get something done, I'll try and find a friend of mine locally who's also a programmer who has some free time that wants to like go sit down somewhere and pair on something. I find like having someone sitting next to you where you're supposed to be working on some problem gives you this level of accountability that basically removes the opportunity to go look at Twitter. Like, why would you go and browse Twitter when you're sitting next to somebody? You're supposed to, <laughs> he's that's just, just like, so weird. He's <laughs> just reading your Twitter feed. <laughs> but it doesn't turn it into this sort of like awkward thing either where you're like, oh, I wish this guy would go away so I could click Twitter. It just like removes that like kind of behavior completely, I find. And I find the same thing like when I want to get really get something important done at work too. Uh, so, I mean, I find there's a lot of benefits like pair programming on things aside from that, but just like the uh, increased focus that it can give you, I think is really valuable trying to do it on my own. I still haven't come up with like, you know, that one secret trick that I shouldn't be telling you on how to be really productive. Some like click baity Buzzfeed <laughs> secret yeah. or whatever, but yeah, no, I don't know. I have to admit, pair programming is just not something I've done very much. I've done it like once. I have no, I don't really have anything against it, but I wonder, is this something that comes down to personality or is it just something that's good across the board? Because when I think about myself, like if I, if I had a coder sitting next to me, it would make me feel uncomfortable. I don't know if that's like my own insecurities, but I, I spend so much time when I'm working on code, literally just not doing anything, but just sitting here and thinking, like just trying to figure it out. And I would feel like if somebody was sitting there next to me, I would feel the need to fill the silence with conversation yeah. when what I really want to do is just sit and think. Is is that a non-issue when you do think, it all the time? I think you just have to get comfortable with it. Um, I know like when I first started working professionally and I would be pairing with more senior people than me, it was definitely really you know, intimidating, especially when I'm trying to drive. You feel like kind of paralyzed and it kind of slows you down at first. But I think um, once you get comfortable with it, for me, I'm infinitely more productive pairing with someone that I am by myself, even if I'm pairing with someone who doesn't really have a lot to contribute, like maybe they're a much more junior developer and we're working on a complex problem, just being able to like say things out loud and kind of judge people's reactions to ideas. It just removes this like analysis paralysis so fast for me and helps me move so much quicker when I'm not dwelling on like, I could do this this way or this way or this way, which one's the right way. Twitter, you know, (laughs) (laughs) new tab. (laughs) Yeah, um, that makes sense. So while you're while you're working, continuing our uh, our derailment of the original simple code topic, is there what kind of <laughs> what kind of music do you listen to? I know Jeffrey's a big Justin Bieber fan. He's mentioned this several times on the podcast. But I'm curious, you know, Adam, do you have any favorite Spotify playlists? Are you also a Bieber? Give us the scoop. <laughs> you know what? I actually I actually don't put music on that often. I do once in a while, but um. It's definitely not like an unconscious thing where like I need to have music going. A lot of time I'll think like, man, why am I not listening to music right now? And I'll put something on. But uh, my source of music is literally just like my personal iTunes library. I'm not much of a shuffle or streaming kind of playlist or random surprises music sort of guy. I mean, music was a big, it still is a big part of my life, but it was like my whole life for a long time. So my music listening is, has always been very deliberate. It's always like, I want to listen to this album and I want to experience this from start to finish. And as a kid, most of my music listening was like lying on my bed with headphones on, with my eyes closed, like listening to music and like experiencing the music. It's not really like a background thing for me so much. 
So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Usually I'm programming in silence and I don't know if that's good or not (laughs) because I do prefer like having someone to talk to. So maybe music would help that in some way, or maybe some ambient rainfall or, uh, some coffee shop chatter. Like there's like apps. I use this app. This is totally unrelated again. Oh man. So I have this app on my phone that I use for like ambient noise when I'm sleeping and uh i listen to like the sound of a fan i don't have a fan in my room so i simulate it through like a little portable speaker <laughs> so it's just like a low pitch just like mm, the whole the whole night which is just enough to like drown out the weird sounds of like uh my fiance like breathing when she's sleeping or me like listening to my own breathing which is distracting in weird ways but anyways there's like a setting on there which is like coffee shop which is just like it sounds like you're in a coffee shop but no one is saying real words (laughs) it's just like weird noise in the background i don't know maybe that would help so i saw this really interesting ambient noise thing on youtube the other day don't ask me how i found it because i i don't remember but um it's basically 24 hours of star trek bridge <laughs> the like you're on the bridge so it's just like random pings and pongs and typing <laughs> it's, it's no joke look it up on youtube it's 24 hours long taylor do not act like you just came across this randomly you were specifically searching yeah. for star trek sounds they also have a star trek warp core room engineering room ambient sound it's about eight hours long yeah, I, I actually listen to like rain when I go to sleep too. Like there's um I go to the site rainymood.com and all it does is just play the sound of rain. So it's it's good, like you said, for drowning out my wife. It's so funny, like my wife, she doesn't even snore, but you know, just like sometimes when you're breathing, maybe like a little snore will come out every twenty seconds. And it's funny because like I'm an I'm an insomniac. I, I don't sleep, so she's asleep hours before me. And just those little sounds every few minutes or go will drive me nuts. And there's absolutely no reason to be upset by it. But for some reason, when it's when you're trying to go to sleep and you hear that, it's like you want to murder the person. And it makes no sense whatsoever. So those getting, really do help me. I'm getting a little concerned about <laughs> both of you seem to have a great deal of animosity toward your significant <laughs> other's breathing habits. <laughs> I think for me, it's my own breathing that's more distracting than anything. I need like something loud enough that my brain can eventually interpret as silence. So the room feels silent, even though probably it's like quite loud if you were to walk in there. Okay, so back to to music. All right, just for the record, I'm not like a believer. I don't even know that sound. That word just makes me want to puke, honestly. Believer. You're just a Justin Bieber fan, right? You just identify as a Justin Bieber I could not tell you one Justin Bieber song. (laughs) Like, I, I like all kinds of music. Like, I, I grew up playing guitar, so I listened to, like, rock and ACDC and CC Top and stuff like that. But I don't really work to that stuff. I like things a little more mellow. So I'll listen to, like, I like soundtracks a lot, actually. Maybe it's a little geeky, but, uh, for example, there's this composer named Hans Zimmer. He did the soundtrack for, for like, Interstellar and Inception. He's brilliant. So sometimes I'll just listen to a whole movie soundtrack the way through. That's what I prefer to work to. Or, or otherwise, something like some kind of quiet pop music or something it's really funny though sometimes i'll be working and you know i'll have spotify on and eventually it just starts shuffling and goes to random so i'll be working i'm not even paying attention to the music and my wife will walk in and like jennifer lopez is playing and it's like i didn't specifically select jennifer lopez but now i look like this weird guy in the dark (laughs) coding to j-lo what about you taylor uh, I can't really listen to anything with lyrics while I work because it's just too distracting. So like on Spotify, I'll go to the genre and moods option. And then I like uh, like I like the atmospheric calm playlist, uh, Zen focus, um, deep focus. Like there's a lot. There's a whole genre of just focus playlist and they're usually like ambient electronic 
type music, so it's pretty chill and uh, not too distracting. So that's usually what I go for when I'm not listening to Justin Bieber's uh, Acoustic Believe album. Oh, God. The <laughs> idea that he released an acoustic album, like, I don't know why that's infuriating to me a little bit, because he hasn't earned it. We've talked about this before. I feel like he hasn't earned the right to do an acoustic album just yet. But Taylor listens to it every day. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we're, we're kind of wrapping up here. We did get one question from Ian Landsman, uh, founder of Userscape, on who is stronger, Adam Wathen or the Hulk? Adam, go. Uh, the Hulk is, is clearly stronger. Uh, if we were to live in the Marvel universe, of course, but yeah. in the regular in Hulk form and Hulk, this is true. Who's stronger, Adam Wathen or Bruce Banner might be a more interesting question, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, no, the Hulk is a pretty strong dude. Um, he's not in the same weight class as me, so I don't think you can really like compare, like we wouldn't compare that in the powerlifting world. It's just, it'd just yeah. be absurd, but I will, I will give it to the Hulk this time. But if the Hulk is at Laricon, maybe we can have a bench off or something on stage and see where it goes. I mean, I've never seen the Hulk do any of the competitive lifts. He's more just kind of a, I mean, he might, he might miss some lifts based on missing some commands or not following the rules or something. And, you know, yeah, he's just sort of a bruiser. Yeah. (laughs) So related, related to weightlifting though, as we wrap up, if you've ever seen a video of Adam bench press, they have this like funky arch back position they get into. Why do you do that? Can you explain that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's a few reasons. So the first reason um, is that having a slight arch in your back does like give you a stronger base to kind of bench press off of. So the goal when you're bench pressing is not to just lie flat on the bench. You kind of want to be like on the backs of your shoulders and kind of digging your shoulders into the bench. So arching your back a little bit kind of puts your back at that kind of better angle where you're kind of digging your shoulders in instead of just like kind of lying flat on your back. Uh, In like the actual powerlifting world, there are some people with very extreme arches in their back. And the reason for that is the higher you can get your chest up, then the lower, the shorter distance you have to move the bar, right? Because the rule is the bar has to come to your chest, pause on your chest until they tell you to lift it and then lift it up. So if you can get your chest really, really high, and you can see this, especially in some of like the women's lifting with some of the really flexible women, there's like this one video of this uh, lady from Russia doing a bench press where the range of motion is maybe two inches from when the bar is locked out to when it's flat. And then I think the other reason is... uh you're not allowed for your butt to come off the bench in competition. And if you arch your back and kind of get your feet underneath you, uh, you can drive really hard with your legs and try and bridge, but it's impossible for your butt to come up because you've already got yourself in this position where you're as bridged as you can possibly be with your butt still touching the bench. So I don't know. It's all, it's all very, so very, very tactical. If, if, D, if DHH challenged you to a bench press, would you let him win? Just because it would be... It would be sort of heartbreaking to beat DHH at anything, I feel like. I think this question is probably going to prevent me from getting any work done for the rest of the day. I'm just going to be sitting in silence contemplating this question. (laughs) All right. Well, we've uh, pretty much exhausted our time here. So thanks to Adam for joining us for this edition of the podcast. And we'll be back. uh, Well, next week we're at Laricon. And then the week after that, we should be back with uh, Matt for another edition of the podcast. Thanks, guys.